RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 341, Starship Down. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a deep dive, risking crushing pressures and inevitable decompression sickness, all in an effort to parse the morals, meanings, and messages in every episode of Star Trek. This week, Starship Down, in which the Defiant must fight off Jem'Hadar ships. Oh, 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 it's been a long time on Mission Log since we had a round of the alternate title game. I'll go first. The USS Defiant and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I'm going to risk a little bit more here. I'm going to try, well, how about these? How about Odas Defiant? Mm, good or, one. Or perhaps Run Cisco, Run Deep Space Nine? <laughs> yeah. Or Balance of Kira? How about this, John? How about this? Uh, yeah. The Hunt for Red Corktober. Whoa, whoa, I defer. That classic. Is that too much of a stretch? <laughs> it's, it's well done. I like it. I can yeah. feel the eye rolls of our listeners right now. <laughs> really, Norm? <laughs> Dost Defiant? But I think they're good with Porktober. I think so. So pick your favorite sub-battle trope. Add a pinch of cork, add a dash of wharf, and a healthy measure of faith. And you have this week's episode, Starship Down. Hey, if you have your own alternate title or just want to chat, give us a shout. Norman, tell the nice people how. Well, if you're trying to actually send your subspace carrier signals through torrential winds, torrential galactic winds, you can contact us and please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and our show website, including discovered documents is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments or alternate show name titles on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, unless I trademark them. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole line of merchandise. Exactly. Remember, (laughs) these are all trademarked, by the way, unless we use your comments, and then we'll trademark those as well. (laughs) So before John gets crushed by increasing gravimetric uh, uh, universal gravity fields let's get into this week's trivia all right trivia for this week's episode starship down uh story and teleplay uh both credited to david mack and john j ordover so here we have one of those great examples of unknowns getting their professional break because of star trek fortunately for us well friend of the show david mack could fill in some of the details of the story So, in March of 1995, uh, David and John pitched the DS9 staff several stories over the phone. This one, Starship Down, was purchased as soon as they heard the idea. But how did a couple of brand new writers get the script assignment, too? Well, go back a little earlier in 1995, uh, David and John also had a phone pitch meeting with Jerry Taylor, who was working on Voyager. 
she liked their work and she liked a DS9 spec script that they had sent in and she encouraged Ira Stephen Bear to let them write the teleplay for this one too. Uh, David said that it was his first professional writing assignment of any kind and it kicked off his now 25-year career with the franchise. He's probably best known for his books at this point. And similar to David, uh, John then has had a long career with Star Trek novels, including a long stint as editor at Pocket Books. He was basically the guy in charge of their Star Trek titles for 15 years. Now, it almost goes without saying that this episode owes a lot to great submarine warfare movies, as we mentioned in the intro, and those have influenced other Star Trek as well. You can go back and listen to Mission Log's discussion of TOS Balance of Terror, our very first encounter with the Romulans, which was influenced by the 1958 Robert Wise film Run Silent, Run Deep. See also the battle in the Mutara Nebula in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. John, may I interrupt uh, you for a second? Is yes, this of the course. same Robert Wise who directed Star Trek The Motion Picture? That Robert it Wise? It is the very same Robert Wise, editor of uh, Citizen Kane, uh, director of West Side Story, director of The Day the Earth Stood Still, and yes, director of Star Trek The Motion Picture. I just couldn't let that Indeed. pass. It is Robert Wise. No, one, one and the same. Uh, a very talented man. Now, uh, David said specifically that this episode was inspired by the German 1981 film Das Boot. Uh, the title, though, was a riff on another submarine movie, that being the 1978 film Grey Lady Down. So this had nothing and to do with Black Hawk Down? No, 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 no or Watership Down. No, sorry, no rabbits none of those. Okay. Yeah, nope, not not a one. Um, side note to all of that, uh, speaking of submarines, is where the very first idea was actually to sink the Defiant in water. It was a bit cost prohibitive, so they decided to go with a gas giant instead. Uh, this episode was directed by Alexander Singer. Of course, he directed a number of TNG and DS9 episodes. We're almost done with his tenure on DS9. He's just got one more episode to go in the final season. Then we will catch up with him again on Voyager. Let's talk guest stars, shall we? Uh, we get to know a couple of enlisted engineers, Muniz and Stevens, played by F.J. Rio and J. Baker, respectively. F.J. pops up in a lot of recurring roles on shows from Beverly Hills 90210 to The Shield. He will be back as Muniz twice more on DS9. Then the actor makes the jump to Voyager and Enterprise and two other guest roles there. Jay Baker is from Tennessee and he got his start in live theater. Guest roles on shows like The Dukes of Hazard led to recurring and lead roles in television and a few feature films like the 1986 horror April Fool's Day. In the early 2000s, Jay moved back to Tennessee and has variously worked in carpentry and TV, either in front of the camera as a host on DIY shows or behind the scenes in the scene shop. Now, we also meet a bridge officer, Carson, played by Sarah Mornell. This is Sarah's only Trek credit, and it comes very early in her professional career. But she has had the good fortune of working in the industry almost simultaneously as an actor, director, and producer. In fact, she helmed a full 92 episodes of the short's web series, Hashtag The Assignment. Finally, we meet the Karma Trader, Hanok, played by James Cromwell. 
James almost needs no introduction. We've seen him guest star on TNG. We've admired his performance as Zephram Cochran in the movie First Contact. He's taken home an Emmy for American Horror Story and was nominated for an Oscar for his role in Babe. Now, this is his only appearance in DS9, and it was particularly fun for Armin Shimmerman, who is already great friends with James. Zephram Cochran shows up again, though, and Enterprise will get there eventually. And one thing I'd like to note is that both you and I just had this strange sensation of kind of feeling Renee coming through James Cromwell when he was behind the Hanok makeup. It's so strange. There's a lot of makeup on both actors, obviously. They're both kind of tall, lean, have that gravelly voice. And there, before I had read the credits or anything and just dove into the episode, maybe the first scene or two, I thought, huh, did they give Renee an extra role in this because they could, because he looks good in prosthetics? Mm-hmm. And then, then it sunk in that it was James Cromwell. Whenever the Defiant pull us away from the docking ring of Deep Space Nine, we are guaranteed that something will go wrong. Let's see just how much. Prologue. At the request of the Karama Commerce Ministry, Captain Sisko and the Defiant have traveled to a remote system in the Gamma Quadrant to meet with Hanok, the Karaman trade negotiator. During these talks, certain truths become revealed regarding certain commerce laws that Quark has negotiated on behalf of the Federation, severely taxing Karaman profits into next to nothing, but also lining Quark's pockets as well. On the bridge, and in his typical command style, Commander Worf demands of his ensign that the latest weapons drill is improved by 15%. Meanwhile, on a duty break, Kira tells Dax that she is fasting for Hamara, the Bajoran anniversary of the Emissary's arrival to Deep Space Nine, and wishes she could see the festivities on Bajor. Dax reminds Kira that Benjamin isn't keen on spectacle, and may even have used this mission as an excuse to avoid the attention. Suddenly, two Jem'Hadar warships appear out of nowhere. Captain Sisko is requested to the bridge as Worf orders a ship-wide red alert and all hands to battle stations. Act 1. Sisko and Hanuk arrive on the bridge and Worf declares that the Jem'Hadar are targeting the Karma ship. Hanuk believes that they have been sent here to punish him and his people for defying the Dominion by trading with the Federation. While hailing the Jem'Hadar warships, they open fire on both the Defiant and the Karma without provocation. The Defiant tries to provide tactical support for the Karman ship, but is trying to reach the safety of a nearby planet, a Class J gas giant with wind speeds of over 10,000 kilometers per hour. Sisko knows the Defiant can handle the stresses of this gas giant and pursues the fleeting Karman ship still under attack by the Jem'Hadar. Upon entering the atmosphere, Kira states that the Defiant has slipped in between two thermal layers, making it somewhat manageable to navigate the treacherous winds. However, the Defiant's long-range imaging sensors are rendered useless, as is the cloaking device, the torpedo targeting systems, and phasers. The Defiant has been rendered both offensively and defensively useless. Kira and Dax brief Sisko on a trick the Bajorans used during the occupation. Using technology similar to old Earth sonar, they would evade Cardassian patrol ships by hiding within turbulent atmospheric conditions 
while using a modulated Tetrion pulse to reflect off of a ship's hull to approximate its location. Cisco was concerned that these pulses would also give away their position as well, but Kira explained that altering course and speed after every pulse would prevent them from possible detection. Cisco approves, and the game of hide-and-seek begins. Meanwhile, back in the mess hall, Quark is doing what he does best in a tight spot. Blames his brother Rom for everything that has transgressed. But Hanok isn't interested in games, and promises that if they live through this attack, Quark would be cut off from doing business in the Gamma Quadrant forever. Back on the bridge, Kira monitors the echolocation pulses as they lock onto what may be the Karama ship. Moving to intercept, the two Jem'Hadar fighters have been laying in wait and savagely cripple the Defiant. Without impulse power to stabilize their attitude, the Defiant sinks further into the atmosphere of the gas giant, causing her hull to buckle from the increasing external pressure. Sisko has O'Brien kit out two atmospheric probes with quantum torpedo warheads, and racing against time, the chief reassures his men that the captain can and will get them out of the situation alive. But the external pressure takes its toll on the Defiant as a hull breach on deck two traps several crewmen, including Dax, who is trying to reroute power in a Jeffries tube alongside engineer Muniz, and several in sickbay. Sisko prepares to rescue the trapped personnel just as Kira delivers Sisko the cold hard fact that if Deck 2 isn't sealed immediately, the Defiant will be lost. Act 2 Dr. Bashir is hastily evacuating his patients from sickbay, and Dax is seconds away from finishing her work. But sooner than expected, the force field collapses, and Sisko makes the hard call to seal off that deck before the entire ship is lost. Bashir saves Munoz, pushing him to safety as he grabs Jadzia and finds shelter in the nearby turbo lift, sealing them both safely inside. Preparing for the worst, Sisko orders the Defiant to reach a higher altitude, which would relieve the ship from the external pressure crushing its hull. Armed with a fully functioning quantum-tipped atmospheric probe, Sisko begins anew his search for the Karaman transport. Quark is uncharacteristically impressed with Hanuk, who Quark believes has the lobes of a Ferengi, the keen business sense of knowing when one is being scammed, as Hanuk knew. Ever the opportunist, Quark offers Hanuk a piece of his action, and where Quark finds Hanuk's lobes to be exceptional, Hanuk finds Quark's entire being to be despicable. On the bridge, Kira's echolocation pulse has locked onto a Jem'Hadar ship, but only one. Worf surmises that they have split up to search for the Karama. Sisko orders the shutdown of all non-essential systems to reduce their signal noise, and rigged for silent running, he orders Worf to program the quantum-tipped atmospheric probe to home in on the first metallic signature it finds within 50 kilometers, even if that puts the Defiant itself at risk. And, as immediately as the probe is fired, a Jem'Hadar warship appears from the blinding winds and devastates the Defiant. The bridge is badly hit, tossing the crew around like ragdolls and slamming Captain Sisko headfirst into the control arm of his command chair. Luckily, the quantum probe finds its mark and obliterates the Jem'Hadar before they can finish the job. Pushing his way through wreckage and sparking optic cabling, the chief tells Munoz to save his breath trying to contact the bridge because O'Brien doesn't think anyone is left alive up there. Act 3 With the bridge in ruins, Worf scrambles to his feet to assess the situation. A shaken Kira crawls over to Captain Sisko, who she discovers is unconscious and unmoving. Worf tries to gain control of the bridge, but both lights and comms are down and cannot reach engineering. 
To make matters worse, Crewman's Boyce and Peterson were both killed in that last attack. Worf assesses that the main power to the bridge controls is offline as Kira tries to stabilize Sisko's condition. Her tricorder informed her that he's suffered a concussion, compounded with subcranial bleeding if left untreated. Sisko could slip into a coma or possibly die. Forcing their way into the turbo shaft, Worf and Ensign Carson prepare to leave the bridge so they can assist engineering and find Dr. Bashir, but Kira doesn't know what she can do for the captain. Worf tells her to keep him awake any way she can. In the turbo lift, Bashir and Dax take stock of their situation. They are cut off from communication, and Dax's health is a bit compromised by inhaling fluorine gas when the deck depressurized, and there are only a few hours of breathable air left. And amidst the direness of their situation, their friendship comforts them through an expression of shared gallows humor. Back in the mess hall, Quark tries to establish a rapport with Hanok. Quark sees Hanok as his complete opposite when it comes to the enjoyment of acquiring profit. Quark lives for the risk and the chase, while Hanok appreciates the tactical art of finding the margin of profit through calculation. According to Quark, it's so sterile and so antiseptic, and for some reason... Hanok's attitude fascinates him. Finally making his way to engineering and updating Chief O'Brien on the captain and the non-operational systems since the last attack, Worf assumes command from the haphazard bridge console in engineering. Although Worf doesn't realize that he is now in command of a handful of engineers and not command-level trained officers, he barks his demands or his commands at them while O'Brien quietly rolls his eyes at the brusqueness towards his men. Kira, trying her best to do as Worf asked, and talking to Captain Sisko to keep his mind awake and focused, struggles to find a way to connect to him on a personal level because, she realizes, all the time that she has known him, they have only regarded each other professionally and with professional courtesy. And for Kira, even more so, as she always sees him as the emissary, her emissary. Sisko, barely conscious, just wants to hear her tell him a story. In engineering, it seems that the echolocator has locked onto several small vessels. Not vessels, torpedoes. O'Brien tries to modulate the deflectors to confuse the torpedo's guidance systems as a countermeasure. The Defiant manages to evade one, but another hits the Defiant, and... Back in the mess hall, with their mouths agape, Quark and Hanuk are frozen in tears, staring at the glowing tip of an unexploded... Jem Hadar Torpedo Warhead. Act 4. Knowing that there is nowhere on the Defiant that would save them from an exploding torpedo, Quark convinces Hanuk that the only way to save themselves, and the ship, and their friends, but most importantly themselves, is to defuse the torpedo. Hanuk is baffled as to how. Quark reassures him there is no lock that can't be picked. The chief identified where the torpedo impacted the hull, but they are cut off from that section of the Defiant. Worf orders Engineer Stevens to recalibrate the structural integrity field to minimize the strain caused by the torpedo. As Steven explains the strain would overextend the field generator compensators for the breach on Deck 2, Worf barks at Stevens, If you cannot carry out my orders, I will find someone who can. O'Brien then politely asks if he can have a word with his superior officer. He reminds Morph that he needs to understand these men he's pushing so hard aren't bridge officers or academy graduates. They're engineers and problem solvers. Good ones, in fact. And every once in a while, 
a word of encouragement with these men would go a long way. Still trapped in the turbo lift, Bashir and Dax try and keep warm and keep their spirits high by reminiscing about Bashir's arrival on Deep Space Nine and his grandiose chase for Dax's affections. It seems that if Julian hadn't come on so strong, she may have given him a chance. He exclaimed that if she wasn't so evasive, he wouldn't have tried so hard in the first place. And now, isolated and alone, all they really have in common at this very moment is the need to survive. At least they shared a laugh. Testing the chief's advice, Worf challenges engineers Muniz and Stevens. He tells them that he needs a weapon, but one created without using their final atmospheric probe. Knowing that the phaser emitters are fused, but the phaser power generator is still functioning, Stevens and Muniz both propose using the main deflector array. But routing that much power will overload it after one shot. Worf says he only needs one shot. Worf gives them the order and the engineers get to work, walking and troubleshooting all the while. And the chief gives the commander an all-too-familiar thank-you nod with a dash of told you so. On the bridge, knowing that she's running out of time, Kira does the one and only thing she believes is the right thing to do for her fallen emissary. She surrenders all of her trust, doubt, and despair to faith and praise. Act 5. As the engineers make their final preparations for their Hail Mary weapon, Hannock and Quark steal themselves for a miracle of their own making. Having accessed the firing mechanism on the undetonated Jem'Hadar torpedo, they are faced with the ultimate choice. Which wire do they cut to disarm the torpedo? As Hannock is trapped in the analysis paralysis of calculation and fear, Quark, ever the gambler, and damning even the best odds, revels in the risk of the moment. And lives to gamble another day, perhaps even to further teach Hannock the thrill of victory, even in trade negotiations. On the bridge, Kira's test of faith comes to pass as Captain Sisko regains consciousness, and in this solemn moment, both of them have found a far deeper meaning and connection in their relationship, not just as captain and major, but as emissary and believer. After tensely waiting for the echolocator to lock onto a solid signal, the Jem'Hadar ship reveals itself, and Worf fires his superweapon and destroys it. As his engineers breathe a sigh of relief and revel in their moment, Dr. Bashir and Dax are rescued from the turbolift. The Kermon traders are rescued from their now unsalvageable ship, and the Defiant heads for the Alf Quadrant and home. Back on Deep Space Nine, it seems that Hanok was a fast learner as he teaches Quark a few new tricks at the Dabo table. Engineer Stevens updates Worf on the Defiance repair estimates, and instead of being met with his usual brusque management style, Worf simply has him proceed at your own discretion. And finally, after Major Kira briefs Captain Sisko on returning the Karmans back to their own world, Captain Sisko invites her to join him for an afternoon of a holosuite baseball game and some very much overdue time to spend together awake from work and duty just as friends. The end. Man, your uh, your wharf is spot on. <laughs> I, I think you have missed an opportunity here to do uh, like some Star Trek audiobooks as read by Worf. As read by Norm, as read by Michael Dorn, as read by Worf. Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah, it's going to be a whole thing for you. Um, Hey, so uh, one thing sort of off the top, uh, just looking at the show as a whole, I was interested to read that uh, this up until this point in production history, really, 
had used the most CG effects that they had done on Star Trek at all, you know, and in DS9 in particular. Um, there's a lot of it, and I will say that it hasn't all aged super well. I mean, most of it is very good, but some of it is a little, you know, it's a little 1995. Um, but it also tells you everything you need to know about why it's not just a simple task to up-res this for HD, you know, um, we we got lucky with Star Trek, the original series and the next generation doing an HD version of those shows. It's a whole different ball game when you get to uh, DS9 and beyond uh, if they weren't mastered in HD. Yeah, but, I, mean, I, ha- I have to believe that almost every single special effect shot would have to be redone. Yeah, yeah, from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be it would be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. So, too bad. But uh, overall, I mean, again, for 1995, very well done. And there are a lot of effect shots in this. When you first watched this, John, uh, and I know that this is the feeling that I got, Mm -hmm. did you just feel that it was an immediate throwback to, say, like Balance of Terror, the original series Balance of Terror? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I thought about that because then I thought about... um, uh, run silent, run deep, and, and it's funny when I, I was going back and forth with uh, David Mack, we were talking about sort of building our uh, submarine movie playlists online. <laughs> you know, like oh, Amazon Prime has got this. Oh, well, you need to go over here and you need to check out. You know, and, and it just brings back. I don't know what it is. I, I've heard that it's a guy thing. Um, that submarine movies. I, I know it's definitely a me thing that I love submarine movies and uh hunt for red october absolutely and this episode put me right back into uh into that headspace of all of those films yeah i mean there's a lot of isolationism going in you know in in this episode and in not just in the in the sense of a sub movie or a sub story submarine story not a sub compartmentalized story Uh, right right but there are sub compartmentalized stories within the sub story that's Mm -hmm. hard to say yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, because you have you have you have Bashir and Dax, you know, you have uh, Cisco and Kira, you have Worf and the Engineers, you know, you have Hannock and Quark. They're all in their own little sub stories of this sub story. Yeah, in, in in a sense. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. And and those types of stories are I, you know, you you go back to um, TNG disaster, uh, where a mm. similar thing happens. Mm. You you have characters spread out on the ship. And they think, oh, well, somebody else in the ship is dead or, you know, there's nobody left on the bridge or or whatever. It's a similar idea. And, yeah, it can be looked at as a bit of a contrivance. I think it's an acceptable contrivance when you're dealing with, well, a ship and and different parts of that ship that are damaged and people who have different roles on the ship. It's a good way also to get into the characters' heads of what happens under duress when they don't mm-hmm. have the uh, the immediate help of either technology or their uh, their, their crewmates, you know. Hey, um, right off the top uh, as well, we, we get this sense of the, uh, the Federation doing trade with the Karma, and uh, Haddock says, you know, the trade with the Federation is unprofitable. Uh, of course, it's because of the Ferengi and, you know, Quark in particular here skimming off the top. But I want to know, what is the Federation paying with anyway? 
and and what are they getting paid? I mean, mm-hmm. this is you know, this all goes back to this big question. Oh well, we we don't need to worry about money. We don't have this, but they are clearly doing something, or it's the biggest scam in the universe. Where somewhere on Federation territory, they've just got huge replicators that are just cranking out like, you know, for us in the 21st century, we would say, okay, gold, platinum, you know, these are things that are valuable to us. Uh, But for the Federation, dealing with, um, you know, dealing with the karma, who knows what's valuable to them, it, it could be something really, it could be silly putty. It mm-hmm. could that that could be the most valuable thing in the karma uh, economic system. Right. Somewhere on a distant moon, you've got a Federation replicator just cranking out silly putty all day long. Because hey, we don't care. We'll just keep making it. You need that? Sure, you got it. It's such an interesting concept that, and maybe it's because you know they're on the fringe of Federation space and they're on a space station that commerce and. The exchange of goods for for whatever currency that you're using still exists, and I know mm-hmm. that uh, the one thing that we can focus on is that you know uh, I think that Picard f- said it best in First Contact, where he said you know it's like the acquisition of wealth is no longer our driving purpose, or something to that degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily erase the fact that there is wealth. It's just the acquisition of wealth isn't right. our driving purpose, right. but I mean, that, it works for the Federation and obviously works for anyone who is in the Federation Charter. But, you know, outside of the Federation Charter, how do you barter and do trade with goods, you mm-hmm. know, with silly putty? Or, I mean, I know that's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of humor, but it's true. Like, you know, what, what do they want? There's always going to be a what do you have, what do you want? And, yeah. and how do we find kind of like that negotiation in between? Right. Well, it's two situations going on here, which is that things still have value you know, or, or they have value to someone. Mm-hmm. And even if the Federation says, well, well, we don't have money and, and not the way that you and I understand that money is a thing that we all agree to, that we all agree has value in the 21st century. Um, that is still, even if we're saying the Federation doesn't have that, the Federation in this case, and in many others we can lack, look at, are still doing business, they are still doing trade with people that aren't in the Federation. So there has to be some uh, some compensation, some something of value that we decide has value. Self-sealing stem bolts, for example. Yeah, yes, and yamak sauce. I'm, and I'm really, I really want to try yamak sauce. What do you think that is? Do you think that's a really just nasty oyster sauce? Uh, no, I think it's uh, 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 Szechuan uh, dipping sauce for mm. uh, chicken McNuggets. Yeah, better, pretty even much. better, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with Quark and Hannock, I felt that they were opposite sides of each other. You know, Quark is the thrill of the risk. Hannock is analysis paralysis and trying to find the, the calculation to have to, to minimize too much risk. You know, like mm-hmm. one needs to kind of balance out the other. And I think that uh, one, having uh, Armin and James Cromwell being friends really lends to the just the, the, the organic nature of their scenes. It's so good to watch them together. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are awesome. And, and I love they, this is what we get so much out of this episode is the people coming from opposite ends, but then finding balance because 
one party needs something that the other party has while that other party needs something that the first has, you know, but, and I don't just mean physically like an object, but, but, uh, part of their personality, something emotional, something, you know, they're all finding balance with each other and they do it just so well. Norman, you know, it's not mission log. If I don't find food in an episode to talk about, let's talk about snacks on the bridge for a moment here. Uh, right in the beginning of the show, um, you have Jadzia and Kira across the table from each other. Uh, they both have uh, a very nicely branded travel mug uh, with the Defiant logo on it. Love that. Very mm-hmm. nice. Um, and I will say right off the bat that I am pro snacks in the workplace. Definitely. Uh, that's important to me. And it looks like Jadzia is maybe having a little plate of Petit Four with her Ractagino. However, <laughs> that that was a very contrived scene. We I, I can't think of any other place in Star Trek that we have had people on the bridge doing work with a plate of food in front of them. Yes, we did have Sulu with a cup of tea on the bridge in uh, Star Trek VI. I love that so much. Um, but we don't actually have people snacking while they're on the job. So it, it was... Like, let's invent this situation. Let's invent this thing to have in front of them. Now we're going to talk about fasting because of the festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. It, yeah. It's sort of like when James Bond gets a very unlikely gadget, but it just happens to be the one gadget that he needs to complete the task in the movie. How dare you, sir? How dare you <laughs> question Q's... Uh, anticipation of what the mission needs. How dare you, sir? Yeah, this is a one-time bond. You're going to get a super mag- uh, magnetic watch. Mm-hmm. Oh, guess what? You're going to need that magnet by the end of the movie. <laughs> Just because. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Hannick, uh, Hannick's makeup and costume, both uh, kind of long and droopy. <laughs> it was funny. Like this shot that we get of Hannock on the bridge after we've seen mostly close-ups of Hannock with this sort of uh, like like almost melting makeup look. And you cut to the bridge and I'm like, oh, his costume is kind of the same thing. They uh, they reflect each other. Yeah, I think it complements his personality. His personality is just it's very kind of maudlin and melancholy and, you know, mm-hmm. they, there's not a lot of joy. Yeah, in his character, yeah, yeah, right, and, and sure. Quarks is uh, it's very vibrant and crisp, and you know, very define, very much defines kind of like the Ferengi mentality of you know the thrill of of winning somebody else's money. Yeah, 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 exactly. So all all full of you know, vibrance mm-hmm. uh, with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is kind of a production thing, but it's always funny to me, especially in TV, how in an emergency situation, people aren't moving all that fast. You know, right. f- physically, actors actually move slowly so the camera can catch them. So they're, they're, they're trying to, to show you that they're moving fast, but they can't actually just zip through at a, at a sprint, you know, because the camera can't catch them. Um, and then they always have time to stop and chat and make jokes. Right. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I love that bit where it's like, okay, it'll take us 20 minutes to arm these warheads. You have 10 minutes. Well, let's stop and chat about this for a mm-hmm. moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. And you're right. That's a, that, that's a super kind of a traditional contrivance with TV back in the day. You know, just yeah. so everyone has their chance to breathe. Yeah. And, and yeah. I know that's kind of a, a little bit of a, a criticism with today's way of things being shot because everything's so hyperkinetic. At yeah. the same time, though, cameras can catch that movement and, and capture the detail. Right. 
you know, of that action without, you know, losing definition and right. things becoming blurry and, uh, and losing kind of like the, the, the quality of the film. Yeah. But yeah. You know, yeah. you have, you have 10 minutes to do this. Hey, well, the, the captain's going to be cool. He's going to get us out of this situation. Yeah. Get those torpedoes rewired. <laughs> yeah, please. Right? Come yeah. on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, a funny moment for me, Cisco has this concussion and, and Kira's trying to keep him awake. The first time she's trying to keep him awake, she says, now pay attention, there will be a test later. And in my head, Cisco's just like, oh, God, please let me sleep. That's all I need. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a while. I mean, even even in indiscretion, we saw more Kira, but it's really been a while where we have seen Kira drop her walls. Yeah, yeah. And really see Nana just act just mm-hmm. organically emotionally act and i yeah. thought this was just so just wonderful to watch been a lot of changes for her uh the kira from season one versus the kira now and and you can tell that they they really focused on that made an effort we've seen a lot more of kira smiling and being personable and it, it's an interesting shift to see mm-hmm. in her um you know in, in an episode uh that is full of tense moments. I absolutely love the moment right before that second torpedo hits in the engine room and watching the countdown and, uh, you know, eyes closed, bracing for impact, and then it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it actually reminded me of something that I love uh, that's this story. Well, you know that I'm a big fan of ocean liners and ocean liner history. And uh, Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic, uh, called Old, Old Reliable because uh, she was so well built and, and survived all, all these many challenges. And uh, during World War I, uh, I, first of all, I love the story that she, the, the captain spotted a U-boat and just aimed right for it and sliced it in half. You know, that, that shows you the strength of that ship. And then the other one was that sometime after the war, they discovered that the Olympic had been hit by a German torpedo that didn't explode just bounced right off of it. And they had no idea until well after. And then years and years and years later, through the work of historians, they were able to figure out what U-boat launched that torpedo, where it was uh, in the English Channel, and what date that occurred. But yeah, that, that just you know speaks to A, the, the strength of the ship, and B, the fact that, yeah, it, it doesn't always work out the way that the, uh, the enemy had planned it out. Yeah, maybe, the, uh, maybe their munitions vendors should have uh, given them a refund. Uh huh. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're supposed to be selling them, you know, uh, quality goods. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I love the bit uh, with Morn at the very end. Poor guy. I mean, we we love Morn. It was a funny bit and so relatable that the friend has to come rescue you from the conversation you don't want to be in. Love. Shout that. out! Shout out to one of our listeners who has asked if they can refer to me as Morn in right. the chats now, and I say. <laughs> Anyone who wants to, I would be honored uh, to 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 carry on the the tradition of Norm. George went from Cheers into Morn into me. Thank you. Very I love much. it. Excellent, excellent. And uh, and hey, man, I, they get back to DS Nine to repair that, and O'Brien says, "Ah, you're going to do it in twelve hours." <laughs> I mean, I, wasn't it just a week or two ago that the Defiant went through hell again, and it was going to be something like two weeks for uh, O'Brien to get things fixed up? Defiant has been through a lot in this episode. I, I'm thinking 12 hours is ambitious at best. Well, here are the things that changed since then. 
you didn't have engineers Stevens and mm. Muniz on the job. They are the miracle workers. It should take John and Norman 30 minutes to discuss the morals, meanings and messages of this episode. I'll give them 15, got to keep my hands on the reins, as they say. We will get back to Starship Down in just a moment, but thank you to everyone who has joined us on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show directly, join us at patreon.com slash mission log. You know, Norman, something that I'm very proud of with Mission Log is that we have a very active community online. Uh, sure, we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, we've got fabulous emails that come in from people who listen to the show. Patreon is a little bit different, though. Uh, Patreon has been a lot of fun because we get to share a bit of the production of Mission Log and then uh, have a little deeper conversation with uh, the people who comment there. One of the special things that I love about Patreon is that, sure, on social media, which is quote-unquote technically free, Facebook is free, Twitter is free, all you have to do is be part of your internet service provider's uh, billing, but Patreon is a, a conscious choice to support the people that provide content to you. In, in that case, it would be us on Mission Log. And I think that it's so just special for all of our patrons at any level to give of their time and to give of their money to support us so that they can appreciate and we can reciprocate the content and the appreciation of that content that is being provided. It's a very wonderful relationship and something that in Patreon, I think that always needs to be cultivated. So thank you so much to all of our Patreon contributors and those who are engaging us in the chat, because that is very special to us and very meaningful. And it allows us to understand what your needs are, what your expectations are, and where you would like for us to drive our content moving forward. Well said, Norman. And once again, for those of you who would like to join us, we certainly do appreciate it. The address again is patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you there. All right, Norman. So Starship Down. Um, you know, you and I were talking uh, actually before we recorded and saying... There may not be a lot of heavy morals, meanings, messages to get into with this show. It is very plot-driven, uh, but we do have some good character moments that come mm -hmm. out of that. Uh, this is an episode that really accomplishes what it sets out to do, which is to tell this uh, harrowing story, separate our cast a bit, uh, so we can focus on how they react in this situation. But I think what's fun here is we can just sort of pick apart a few of those scenarios and see what's happening in each of those combinations. So, you know, right away, the Cisco-Kira relationship is something that gets developed in a great way in this episode. I, I absolutely love it they, that they get closer on this personal level. Um, you know, she says, we talk about work, even when we're not working. Mm-hmm. That is, it, it, it is a truth that is very interesting that she points out. And you kind of have to wonder the writers in approaching this episode look at the other character combinations and go, huh, well, you know, Cisco and Jadzia have this relationship because they were friends before when Dax was a different Dax or in a different host. And uh, O'Brien is pretty open, Bashir is pretty open. 
but Cisco and Kira aren't. Mm-hmm. How do we change that up? How do we explore that? So I thought it was inspired to have them on the bridge with her having to care for Cisco in this part. Now, at the same time, I am extremely curious about Kira seeing him as, quote unquote, the emissary, since Cisco so far has really had very little to do with that title. I mean, he even skips the ceremony in Mm -hmm. his honor. And I know that uh, we will go much further and much deeper into that as the series goes along. But just where we are right here, right now, early season four, it's a little odd to me that Benjamin hasn't just said, okay, look, uh, stop worshiping me. (laughs) I'm I'm a guy. I'm a dude from Earth. I'm your captain. Uh, I'm here to do a job. And I thought, well, maybe going to the baseball game together in the hollow suite will help that. I thought it was a lovely moment at the end to just see them connect on that level. Because I would think it would be very weird that you're in command of somebody in a workplace environment, and yet that person is looking at you not just as the commander, but also the spiritual figure. To me, I would feel extremely uncomfortable in that I have joked before on this show about the old uh, Ghostbusters line, if somebody asks if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> but, but, but realistically, uh, I don't think I could. Yeah. So I'm going to address this in a completely askew, uh, I guess, uh, obtuse kind of way. I expect nothing less. This episode, to me, smacks so heavily of, obviously, the submarine story tropes. But when you really think about it, this movie is The Breakfast Club. <laughs> did I just blow your mind, listeners? That's, did I just blow your mind? That is hilarious and wonderful. Right. Yeah. Because in The Breakfast Club, if you've seen that, 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 uh, that legendary 1980, I don't want to say what year it was because it'll date me. It'll date you, John. It'll date most people. Uh, but it's that, that um, amazing John Hughes film that is probably one of the greatest, uh, I guess, greatest representations of uh, growing up in the 80s. Nah, that's uh, beside the point. But... What, what I, why I'm referencing The Breakfast Club here is because in The Breakfast Club, you have a group of people that uh, tangentially know each other because they're in the same environment. But now they put them into kind of this, this specialized environment, a la detention, in this case, a la the defiant. And what happens when you take these very distinct personalities that should never have been, I guess, never have been forced into situations that they're uncomfortable in and watch them grow in that environment. In this case, you have, I guess, four distinct stories. You have Bashir and Dax, which isn't really that big of a stretch of a story, so I'm just going to kind of put that aside. Mm -hmm. But then you have Worf struggling with his management uh, responsibilities. (laughs) That's one story. Mm -hmm. You have Kira and Sisko. That's one story. And then you have uh, Quark and Hanok. That's another story. And all of these characters are kind of like forced into their own crucible and... In a way, they're trying to find, obviously, the solution to their situation. And in that solution, there's a truth that's burned away at this crucible of that moment. And in, in Kira's and Cisco's situation, Kira, she is literally burning away the truth of her faith. Like, it's her faith that puts her at, at a distance with Cisco. But Cisco doesn't care mm-hmm. about his, his title and uh, the... Uh, admiration of being this religious figure those two are at odds with each other 
more at odds are, say, Worf's command style and his employees in a way. And I completely relate with that because at one point in time in my management history, I was Worf. Hmm. I, was, I was like, why can't you do your jobs? Just do your jobs. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. I did that just for you, John. Well, well done. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank but you. it's true, though. It's like there, there, yeah. are, there are times in your management style where you're just like, I do my work. I work hard. If you work just as hard, you should do your jobs better, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's not the case. You're not dealing with the individuality of people, which is what O'Brien was getting at. And then we have this more uh, robust story with Hannock and Quark because Quark is like, you know what? Let's just grip it and rip it. You know, just roll the dice and see what happens. And he believes yeah. that. It's not just a contrivance. Quark and the Ferengi just, you know what? Risk it all because if you win, it's – and if I may say this without uh-huh. offending anyone – it's kind of what Gordon Gecko said in Wall Street. When he, when he acquired his very first real estate deal, he said it was better than sex. Mm-hmm. And that's to the Ferengi. That's what, that's what acquiring wealth is. That's what cheating somebody out of their own hard-earned latinum is. Yeah. It's better than anything you can possibly imagine. But Hannock doesn't get that. So I love there are these three, four. I mean, the, mm. the sheer Dax thing isn't really a thing, right? Do you, well, do you think so? I, I, okay, all right. I, let's let's talk about that. All right, uh, because I, uh, I I don't know. Look, ha- having them trapped together, I I actually I don't know how to feel about this moment. And and I certainly uh, the whole sharing the fantasy about being trapped together, dude, dude, Bashir, come on. You know you're creepy at first. <laughs> and then you got considerably less creepy as we got to know you. But then he just messed that up and, and he throws out, look, I know he's joking. I know he's joking, but he throws out this line like, well, you enjoy being chased. Oh, it just so cringy. So made cringy. my skin crawl. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think I have a solution for this. Okay. Flip the roles. Just Bashir is the doctor who, in this case, can't take care of himself. He's the one who inhales the gas. He's the one who needs rescuing. Because Jadzia, and look, I I know that you run the risk of uh, making Jadzia constantly the hero, but let's face it, uh, Jadzia is pulling from hundreds of years of lifetime experience. Jadzia is the scientist on board. Jadzia can take on a Klingon and a Batleth fight. I wanted to see that. And I wanted to see... Look, Bashir can have his moment. Bashir can think he is close to death and and confess something sweet and even loving to her. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. Yes. But the way this played out, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, totally I, cringy. I had a problem with that. Yeah, <laughs> I love your. I, you know, I love your idea, and I think that yeah. there there was a a moment where where Bashir had his heroic moment when he shoved Munoz through the bulkhead and sealed it. That was his heroic moment, yes. and then he suffered the consequences from that. Yeah, right. And then Jadzia is like, no, he's like, we can we can um, we can go into the turbo lift, and then all of a sudden, like Bashir has suffered the uh, you know the uh, the circumstances of him being a hero. Yeah, and as he's dying, or as he is severely injured and possibly dying, he does that very tropish yet very effective uh, moment where he's like, you know, Jadzia, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to push you away. You know, I really care about you. Blah 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 moment, mm-hmm. right? But he's earned it because 
he was the hero. Yeah, exactly. Right? Earn it. Earn yeah. it. That's all. Yeah. That's all and and, and all he earned yeah. was just cheese, whizzy, cringiness. Yeah. Just, uh Yeah. You love the chase. I, I, I literally, my skin crawls. Oh, yeah. When I, you know, like, <laughs> I know. I that's know. just so gnarly. Yeah. To, to, to coin a Californian uh, phrase, it's so gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so California, man. Right. Uh, all right. Let, let's talk about uh, just a, another kind of pairing here that I actually really love. I love those two engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, man. Uh, they're just so relatable, so well written, so real. Um, and Star Trek does not always do a good job at this, where right. you introduce a couple of new characters and then, you know, they're immediately cannon fodder or, or they're just sort of there to do something functional and then you get them out of the way. We get to know these guys. They're brand new, but we get to know them. We need more people like that on board. And, and I realize, you know, mid-90s Star Trek, we're, we're in this transition period. Um, production technique, production style, script style on DS9 is different from what we had on TNG and certainly on TOS. It's very different from what we have now as of this recording, where there's a lot of new Trek uh, coming out of CBS. Um, And we do have a lot more texture and a lot more variation in who gets introduced and how they fold into the cast. This just fired on all levels for me. I I love that they are there also to facilitate giving a lesson to Worf. And it's great interplay with O'Brien as that facilitator. And it drives home some of the key lessons of this show. You know, not everybody starts out with the same expectations or understanding that you do. So you want the best out of people? You got to show respect for them where they are and then meet them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have just skipped forward to the morals, meanings, and messages. But <laughs> as long as we're talking about the the pairings in this show and, and how these characters are separated, I thought, honestly, that was the most effective for me. I really like the Kira Cisco pairing, but I think there's still something strange to be explored there because she reveres him as well. The the Dax and Bashir pairing, well, we we just talked about that. <laughs> you know, that's strange. And then the uh, the Hanak and Quark, I, I think we get what we need to get out of that. But there aren't necessarily big surprises there. They're right. so opposite. You can kind of tell from the beginning where this needs to land with mm-hmm. them. But the stuff with the two Ensign engineers um, or, or non-com uh, engineers, just a, a revelation. Really worked well. And I know we're getting Munas back, but I really was hoping to get more of both of them back. Well, I think for a lot of fans out there, and uh, I can't speak for you, John, but for me, we all loved Lower Decks. Yeah. Right? And Lower Decks is, we love Lower Decks because we get to see the lives of either officers or non-coms or people that are, are in the the situation that they were in. And in this case, it would have been the Enterprise D. But in this case, you get to see people that are good at their jobs if you allow them to be good at their jobs. And it also extends Worf's, uh, I guess, his, his character development and character motivation and his evolution as a person because slowly in this season, since we were introduced to him in Way of the Warrior Part 1 and 2, Worf's been in this fish-out-of-water kind of situation, and he's slowly learning how to become a better Worf. 
And in this case, thanks to O'Brien, Worf does the one thing that he's not comfortable doing, and that's trusting somebody else, as he didn't trust Odo with the security qualifications for his job, as he doesn't trust people when it comes to what he believes he's better at. And in this case, he doesn't have any choice because he's not an engineer. You know, he's not somebody who can problem solve the way that engineers can. And he just can't push at them. He just can't keep poking his fingers like, do better, do better, do better, you know? <laughs> no, you have to let them do what they do. And I love the scene where they walk away and say, like, you know, you're going to have to take the ODN converters, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, easy for you to say you're not working on so-and-so. You know, you're going to have to clean up after yourself. They're real people that have real problems that are trying to find real solutions and get back to their lives and get back to their, you know, to their families. And I find that so refreshing to see. Yeah, not, not enough of that in a Star Trek, at least up to this point. So True. major gold stars for that one. Pay close attention to the wrap-up. There will be a test later. Okay, not really, but we don't want you to lose consciousness before the closing credits. So, John, we've had a fantastic discussion about Starship Down. And I know that even though it's somewhat of a tropish type episode, there are a lot of really good morals, meanings, and messages in this episode, if you really think about it. So in your opinion, in your estimation, and in the tradition of Mission Log, does this episode for you hold up? Well, I mean, we, we talked about all the things that excited us about this episode, Primarily, it's a submarine warfare episode, and it happens to be a very good one. Um, they constantly raise the stakes. There are moments of growth and humor where you need it. Um, we feel relieved at the end. You know, all this tension was built up, and then they, they had a nice send-off for this episode with a, with a smile and, a, and, you know, something to break the tension. Everybody's okay. Everything in here works very well except for maybe that Bashir Dax scene, <laughs> you know? And as I mentioned before, I really like seeing all the new faces here. Um, they weren't just blown off or, or blown up. Uh, they had good, solid scenes. I will say this, though. Uh, as thrilling as this episode is, it didn't really hold up for me in the context of the multiple rewatches I do for Mission Log. Now, that's a little different from real-world watching and rewatching. There are great moments, but this is a plot-heavy, it's a plot-driven episode. So once you've seen it a few times, I think you sort of need some time away from it to appreciate it again. Otherwise, it's just you're sort of watching to get from point A to point B. But if that's the only thing that I can find wrong with it, then that's not such a bad problem to have. It's just that, oh, okay, I enjoyed it. And then sometime down the road, I would definitely enjoy watching it again, uh, just because mm -hmm. of the, the action and the fun of it. So yeah, it, it holds up in the respect that it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do. Does it hold up as the crowning achievement of Deep Space Nine? No, but it, it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to be that episode. This one needed to be fun, and tense and have action and great character moments. So for that, well done. Uh, how about you? Well, in the last couple episodes, I've talked about 
wow, I really hope we get kind of a softball episode so that they can serve <laughs> up something that isn't so like, you know, it's just these moral quagmire episodes that yeah. have multiple layers yeah. and very deep meanings and something that is just so really, really, really difficult to chew on and, and disseminate and dissect. And that's, to say, that's not to say that this episode doesn't have that, because I think it does in some degree. But you're right. This is a very kind of linear progression type of story where there's a, you know, there's a problem. There are multiple ways that people are affected by this problem and a very kind of uh, very well tightened up and wrapped up solution to the problem. But within that time, you have really fantastic character development moments, especially for Kira especially for Worf and to some degree to uh, Quark, uh, not necessarily for Bashir. We're, we're going to kind of just not talk about that moment uh, ever yeah. again. <laughs> right. <laughs> but especially for, for characters that you don't really get to see this type of progression. And, and I love the fact that Kira had her moment to connect with Cisco in the way that she needed to. And I love the fact that Worf is starting to get a little bit more uh, of um, of a well-rounded nature to his personality as opposed to just being Worf, the Worf that we know or knew from TNG and the TNG extension movies uh, mm-hmm. to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's giving us a, a fantastic uh, refreshing of his character and how he's moving forward with this series and making Worf his own for Deep Space Nine and the way that Michael Dorn's approaching his character. But I think that the the, the hidden gem in this episode really are the the non-major players and we're talking about engineers stevens and munez because they were just they're so real and so relatable and these are the kind of characters that you want to root for and make sure that they they see past this episode or you see them past this episode and Star Trek doesn't do enough of that, you know, and yeah. obviously they have to, the, to drive the, the audiences to the main characters. But every once in a while, you really do kind of like strike it rich when you when you focus on characters that just are far more relatable in the grand tapestry that is Starfleet. There are still very human, very real, very tangible people that you can focus on. And I think that this story does that very well with those two. Yeah, I'll probably do a rant about this at some point later on 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 another show. But something that I feel very strongly about with Star Trek is that you have to have characters who aren't magic, who who aren't special just by birthright. Um, That's not what Star Trek is. Star Trek is a projection of us in the future. And it's us at our best. It's us doing a great job. It's us working together. And I think you mess that up when you bring in characters who are just sort of, by divine provenance, are good at everything and more important than anybody else. So I think it's important when Star Trek does bring in and sort of remind you with these characters who are just, they're just everyday dudes who are good at their job and and with Stevens and Muniz uh, excited about their jobs. It's like they're presented with this challenge like, oh man, we can do this. We'll disable the safety protocols. <laughs> we'll do it even better, you know? Yeah. That, that's why it's fun and relatable. And, you know, I, I think those are the characters that, and, and I'm not saying that even particularly within DS9 or TNG, but, you know, every now and then you're presented with a character who you just go like, oh, something doesn't, feel right here because we're we're almost making that character so good 
so perfect at what they do that they stop being relatable. And really what I want out of Star Trek is just people who are awesome at their jobs and, and who through their hard work and their cooperation and their constant growth and learning can show us something about ourselves. You know, that, and that the, these two, I, it's funny that we're just focusing so much on these two, Stevens and Muniz, but they really embody that in this show. And it's rare to see, it's rare to see uh, two characters like this being uh, given so much time yes. in, right. in developing like what they're supposed to do. Now, sure that they're a vehicle for giving us a little bit more of Worf's evolution as a, as a character and as a, an officer. But in doing so, you're getting to see all these different facets of and levels of Starfleet operations, not just the command level. And I love that's what um, that's what O'Brien said. He said that these aren't Starfleet Academy graduates; these aren't officers. They're just guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, precisely. And it would have been, and I think it also would have been neat if it was a female engineer and a male engineer, just to get a little bit more diversity in there. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, but we did get a, a female bridge officer, and uh, and and she had her moment with Worf, and uh, True. that was good, you know. Well, let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. I mean, I, I, I keep indicating that this is a plot-heavy episode uh, with great character moments, but are there uh, the the takeaway moments, morals, meanings, messages for you? After watching it several times, I didn't see this at first. And I mentioned this before that I felt that there was a very kind of breakfast clubby type of <laughs> dynamic going on with the, with the overall narrative. But when you really kind of boil it down, for me, this entire episode has to do with faith. And there are very different ways that you can apply faith to what you see in the different dynamics of this episode. Now, for Worf, it's hard for me to say this because it's, it, it's admitting that I was really, really, really terrible at something. Mm. But earlier on in, in my career, I was expected to manage people. And I did exactly what Worf did. I said, if you work as hard as I do, and if you do as I do, then you'll be better at what you're doing than, than you think you are or that you think you're capable of. But that's not how you deal with people. And I grew and to understand that. And I hopefully will, Worf will too. But when you're dealing with this kind of management style, you have to have faith in the talent and in the ability of people that you are grooming to be better than they're even, uh, than they can even expect from themselves. That's faith. They may not do it the way that you want, but they'll do it the best way that they can based on how you have trained them. And that's a, a level of control that you have to give up. And that's the same thing for Kira. Kira is all about control. Mm-hmm. You know, she's in control of her destiny. She's in control of her skill sets. She's in control of Deep Space Nine. She's in control of the, her, uh, you know, the Bajoran people. All these locks that she has, she has to give up in this episode because the one thing she can't control is what's happening to Cisco. So what happens when you lose control? You have to rely on faith. Most people that are, are of an extreme faith, they're very in tune with what they can and can't control. And in this case, Kira has to basically say, Jesus, take the wheel because I don't know what to do. And she relies on faith to get her through, hmm. especially with her own God. Um, you know, for, for a lesser extent, you know, uh, Bashir and Dax, you know, they're, they're hopeful that, you know, their own camaraderie will pull them through. But I, I really do like what happened with Quark and Hannick. And, and Quark's just basically saying that, hey, you know what? No risk, no reward. 
believe in the faith that you're going to roll the dice the right way and it's going to provide for you the right way. So I see a lot of different layers of faith and, and way people can interpret faith. And it's essentially like, you know what? In order for you to be able to really come to terms in, in peace with what you have and what you're capable of, you have to rely on the faith that other people will be able to do the same for you or that the universe will provide. Hmm. That is an interesting way to put it. I, um, it may be my own personal thing here. I, I, I sometimes have a problem with the word faith because I think it's a very loaded word and it means something different to different people and even to the same people can mean different things in different contexts. I like the idea of trust. I like the idea that uh, as a manager, uh, you know, Worf needs to learn to trust that the people around him are capable of doing their jobs. That you have done a good enough job or the other people around you have done a good enough job to get everybody to the level that they can perform for you. Now I say all that, but it's very interesting here because with Kira, we are dealing with a person of faith, you know, with a capital F, because this is all tied into her religious tradition and her spirituality. And that's, as I said earlier in this show, that's where I'm very curious to see how this plays out, because this is a complicated relationship between Kira and Cisco, the friends, Kira and Cisco, the co-workers, and then Kira with Cisco, the emissary, <laughs> who is phenomenally important to her belief system. I, I can't see that as being a thing that realistically is very workable, but we've got many, many, many more episodes to let that play out and, and see where we go. I think the only thing that I could possibly add to that uh, as far as morals, meanings, message, or, or takeaway lessons, uh, is that, you know, in each of these groups and each of these settings, uh, we do have people having to meet each other on a different level. People starting from completely opposite ends of the spectrum and realizing if we're going to survive, we have to work together. And if we're going mm -hmm. to work together effectively, we have to speak the same language. We have to understand and respect what each other brings to the situation, not try to control or force you into something that you can't do or are so uncomfortable with that, uh, that you won't be able to perform. It's about compromise. It's about changing mm -hmm. a point of view in order to see eye to eye with the people around you. It's good management. It's good simply interpersonally. Um, and it, it works for everybody in this episode. And, and hey, for Hennick, he learned a valuable lesson that uh, gambling is fun uh, at the, uh, by the end of the episode. So, so there's that little takeaway, too. I have one last question to pose to you, John. Sure. And to pose to the rest of our listeners, especially our Patreon listeners, who are going to have first crack at this question. Mm -hmm. In this dynamic, who is Judd Nelson? And who does he give his diamond-studded earring to? <laughs> I'm going to refrain from answering that. I'm going to let our listeners take over from there. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find the Roddenberry Podcast Network and all of our shows at podcast.roddenberry.com, including Mission Log, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! 
If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Little Green Men. Anybody out there have any need for a slightly used quantum torpedo? Makes a great lamp. Taking offers. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.